welcome! This is episode 2 of Into the Fold for June 24, 2021. Welcome to Into the Fold, an in-depth look at Lee Bardugo's Grishaverse and all that it contains. I am Jeff. And I'm Juliana, and welcome to the Fold! Alright! Episode 2! The one that yes, comes you... after the first one! Yes, two does come after one. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Yes, I, I, did some, I had to do some studying, but I figured out how math works. A quick note to our listeners before we actually get into the meat and potatoes of our episode today. We've talked about how we are going to be releasing every other Thursday, and that is still the plan. However, we had a staff meeting. Anytime the two of us are talking is a staff meeting because we're the only ones who work here. It's official, though. It is official. After our last recording, we realized that if we kept to our recording and release schedule the way it was, then there was only going to be three days between when an episode releases and when we record the next one. And we wanted to allow a little bit more time for people to listen whenever they feel like they can and to get their feedback in because that's, like we said before, that's going to be our favorite part of of doing this is interacting with you guys. So what we're going to be doing is this episode is going to release on June 24th instead of July 1st. But the episodes are going to continue to release for every other Thursday after that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just going to have two episodes in a row, uh, two weeks in a row. And then henceforth, it will be every other week. I mean, two episodes in a row. That's pretty fun. Yeah, I'd say so. I just don't want to trick people into thinking that we're doing a weekly show because that's not what's happening. No. As of right now, that is not the case. Um Maybe if we happen upon some some magical thing that grants us extra time and money and things like that, that will be the case. But as of right now, it will be every other week. And we're we're still excited to do it. So yay! Yay! Excitement. Okay. What do you say we get into it? So we actually did have some developments since the last time we got together to record, so it is time for news from the front. <laughs> So first, Juliana, you put this in here. Are they done with the writing of season two of Shadow and Bone on Netflix? Yes, they are. I've seen on multiple uh, social media platforms, multiple accounts, that they are finished with the writing already, actually. So it seems as if they were told probably a little bit before that they were going to be getting a second season. Uh, or they just had the inkling of it and now they're working on getting the cast and fine-tuning it i was i found that they were they did the first draft i guess is what i mean to say they've done the first draft of writing season two so i have a feeling there probably will be some edits they still have to do casting there's still a lot of things left to do but they're done with the initial the initial writing of the first of the second season which is exciting, because soon we might get some casting, and Jeff knows who I'm excited to get casted. I'm not going to say anything, because people who have not read the books and have not seen the show, uh, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but uh, I'm very excited for someone we have not seen yet in the show to be casted. Me too. 
I know which character I think most people are excited about. It isn't necessarily the one that you're most excited about, but yeah. it's a character whom I love very dearly. Most of the characters I love very dearly, except for the ones who are obviously intended to be villains. And what else do we have in the news this week, Jeff? Well, Lee Bardugo, who I've suspected for a while is not all that fond of using social media, but understands the importance of utilizing whatever tools you have available to connect with your fans. Because she does post from time to time. Most of the time when she does, it seems like she's interacting with fans as much as somebody with her level of fame and her busy schedule is able to. But it's mainly to share news about what's going on direct from her. She made a post on Instagram letting people know that she's going to be taking another hiatus because she has got stuff going on. She is working (laughs) on the sequel to her novel, Ninth House. Ninth House is also being adapted for television. I don't think we talked about that before, but yeah, Ninth House, which we spoke briefly about in episode one, is going to be adapted for television as well. I think it might be on a... I think I do remember hearing, I may be wrong, that they're adapting it for a different network than... um, Netflix. Yeah, not for Netflix. That's kind of what my brain is telling me HBO, but I have no actual facts behind that. That's just what my brain is telling me. We'll check it out. Yeah. But the other thing that has been news lately is that Lee Bardugo has decided to step back from production of the Shadow and Bone series on Netflix. So it seems like, as Juliana said, they've finished the first round of writing for the show, so... That's probably going to be edited by other people, I would assume. She may stay on in an advisory role, like they may check with her from time to time, we don't know. But as far as her working directly on production for uh, Shadow and Bone on Netflix, it looks like she's taking a step back from that. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame her. She's doing quite a lot. So, and being a TV producer clearly isn't her main passion and isn't her main Thing that she set out to be she's an author so i can see her kind of sidelining that portion of what she's doing right now and really just prioritizing her books and things like that right and she may come back that's also an option yeah there's there could be a lot of reasons why she's doing it but what's important i think is that she's recognized she needs to make difficult decisions in order to do what's best for her which i admire and Because I know she's worked directly with Netflix to adapt the show, and she's so pleased with how it's turned out, I think if she's decided that she can safely step back from working on the show directly and leave it in the hands of people who are going to take care of it, then if she can trust them to do a good job with it, then I think the fans should be able to as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And that is what is in the news. Yes. Thank you, Jeff, for the news. Very informative. Love it. Here for it. And now, we are going to get into our first round of listener feedback! Yay! So much excitement! It's time for The Voice of the People. We got our first email from a very good friend of ours who we mentioned in the last episode. Juliana, would you care to read it? Yes, this is from someone who I have no idea who they are. I've never met this person ever one time in my entire life. And their name is Mal. 
That might be how you pronounce it. Not sure. And this lovely human sent us an email saying, My dear Jeff and sweet Juliana, I am so happy and excited for you to start this new adventure. Huzzah! Your first episode was fantastic and congratulations are in order. You were witty, made us laugh, and the singing, as always, flawless. For those of us who are so lucky to already know you, didn't expect anything less with two such great hosts. I'm excited to dive into these stories with you and learn how to actually pronounce all those names. Juliana should be able to nail this. Just channel your inner German-Russian accent. And I can't wait to see where this all leads. To quote Bilbo Baggins, I'm going on an adventure! With my dearest friends. Stay fabulous. Love you both very much. Melanie. Thank you, Mel. We love you too, Melanie. That was Melanie. so sweet. Thank you for and your she's email. Right. Most of the time when I do an accent, it kind of goes back to a weird Russian accent. So um, maybe I'll nail these words. I probably won't. We're going to find out a little bit later in this episode how terrible Juliana is at pronouncing these things and the ways that she's been pronouncing them in her head and how it's probably going to surprise Jeff. We also got a shout out on Instagram from Kendra Dantes. She is a fabulous musician. She writes beautiful music. And she's the only person I know who is writing music inspired by the Grishaverse. She may not be the only one, but she's the only one I am aware of. And she left us a comment to say that episode one is, quote, awesome. So we would like to say that Kendra is, quote, awesome. And if you want more proof, she has just released a music video for her song Fallen. It is out now, and it is incredible. So go and check that out after you're done listening here. So you asked a question on Instagram of some of our listeners. You wanted to know, since we talked in our last episode about how we discovered the Grishaverse, you wanted to know from our listeners, how did they find the Grishaverse? And we got some very interesting answers. Yeah, we actually got a pretty good variety and a lot of people who were very similar to you, Jeff, which is interesting. Uh, our first listener feedback item comes from Allie, our friend Allie on Instagram, Diagon Allie. Allie said, I saw Kaz's name on the best book boyfriends list and I had to read it. Six of Crows first and then Shadow and Bone. So she did, kind of did the same thing as you, Jeff, even though I don't know if you saw Kaz's name on the best book boyfriends list and that's what prompted you. I didn't, but I gotta track down this best book boyfriends list, and I am just crossing my fingers hoping that there is at least, like, a sentence or two on why the people on the list are there. Because Kaz Brecker is one of those fictional characters I can easily see people having a big ol' crush on, especially since they cast Freddy in the role of Kaz Brecker on the Shadow and Bone series on Netflix because he is just a wonderful looking young man. Yes. But in terms of somebody you would actually want to date, I don't know about that. I, I, I'm in the middle of Crooked Kingdom right now and ooh. You'll notice that she does say that this name appeared on a list of best book boyfriends but she did not say whether she agrees Ooh. or not and maybe he was at the bottom who knows maybe it was a list of a hundred books and it was the last book on the bottom right maybe i'll check out the list and then we can talk about it i would say as long as kaz is above edward cullen i think i'm okay with that 
Buh, don't start me on Edward Cullen. <laughs> so our next comment on Instagram comes from ERD Clown one or possibly Erd Clown one That's a fun name. They said, I saw the show Shadow and Bone and liked it a lot. Started searching it on Pinterest and found a quote that was something like, If you think Inej's backstory is f***ed up, wait till you find out about Kaz's. Yesterday, I finished Six of Crows and they were right. Ditto. Ditto or clown one. They certainly do have really just heartbreaking backstories yeah a lot of the characters do it's something that the characters seem to share in common is even the characters who seem to be succeeding or even thriving at the point where we meet them when we find out about what they endured to get to where they are they've been through a lot yeah a lot of the most of the characters are like just going through a thing all the time oh my goodness yes all the time it's going through things it's a book yes our next person was leslie who is the geek weekly podcast who is having a podcast that will be coming out soon so go listen to her once her podcast starts coming out i believe the end of june beginning of july and she said she's discovered the books through me and i told her about them and she went and bought the books so i'm very excited that she's going to be reading along with us and she also told me that she is starting a book club with her best friend and they're reading at least one chapter a day and discussing it every day which is so freaking adorable and i love that so that much. is exactly what this is yes exactly i told her she or her best friend should listen with her with us too um and we're happy to get any of their feedback that they have so yay so there you have it you have paid it forward i shared this with you you shared this with leslie leslie is now sharing this with her friend yes and it's just going to continue. And isn't that wonderful? I think so. I think it's absolutely lovely. I think lovely. so, too. So thank you, Leslie, for listening to the show. And congratulations on starting your own podcast. We can't wait to hear it. Yes. The last comment I have here about entering the Grishaverse fandom comes from Stacy. Stacy's a fabulous human being as well. She comes from the wizard rock band Swish and Flick. I'm a big fan of her music also, so people should check that out when they have a minute, because her spin on wizard rock is very fascinating, and I'll let you find out for yourself exactly why. But Stacy says, I walked into my teenage daughter's room and said, give me something to read. She has an amazing YA collection. She gave me Six of Crows. The cover had a gothy vibe, and the idea of a heist intrigued me, so I dove in. I was not disappointed. Awesome. I love this relationship that Stacy has with her daughter, where she's going to her daughter and saying, Hey, why don't you tell me what I should read? Because so many times it's the other way around. Parents are trying to get their kids to read. They're trying to give their kids things that they might find stimulating, but she's getting... Excellent book recommendations from her daughter. Yeah, I think it's also a great way to connect with your kids, too, is because you know it's something that your child likes already. And if it's something you that you end up liking, too, huzzah, you have something that you two can talk about, which is awesome. Definitely awesome. And she's right. The cover for Six of Crows has a very gothy vibe. And who doesn't love the idea of a heist? A heist can involve so many different things. It has action. It has comedy. It can have romance. It can have suspense. A heist is one of the perfect plot points for a YA fantasy book. Yes, and a lot does happen in that book. And we will get to that eventually. I love how often we're saying that. I love how often we're saying, we'll get to that, or don't worry, we'll get there. Yes. I feel like that is the the stand-in for us 
actually spoiling things, it's better to just say we'll get there than have either you or I accidentally go off on a tangent and spoil things for listeners. So, uh, listeners, we will get there, and then you'll know what, what we mean. We did ask one more question of people this week, and we asked, do we have any tips for new readers? And Vanessa underscore 9169 on Instagram said, buckle in, Spanky, you're in for a bumpy ride. And to that we say, yes. <laughs> Very accurate, and thank you for calling people spanky. <laughs> that was classy. <laughs> Always so much class on this podcast. Always so much so class. So much class. So, Jeff, we also have one review this week, and I would like you to read it, please. Well, okay. We do have a, our first of hopefully many five-star reviews, and I have no idea who could have possibly written this, but I'm going to read it. <laughs> It says, if you're looking for in-depth discussion and quirky fun, this podcast is for you. Jeff and Juliana are so warm and welcoming. They make you feel like you belong, whether this is your 1,000th time reading the books. They just make it so enjoyable to read along with them. If you love the Grishaverse or just want something fun to listen to, this show is for you. Who could have written that? What mystery I don't human know. being could have written that lovely review? Of us well, that's the point of usernames on the internet, anonymity. And then before we get into our main discussion, you had some shout-outs that you wanted to throw out real quick. Yes, we just wanted to shout-out Eric and Terry of the Grisha cast for shouting us out, and we sent them little keftas, and we're happy that they liked them. So go ahead and check out the keftas that we sent them on their YouTube channel, because they're now featured behind their heads on their YouTube channel when they are recording their podcast. So you can see the pink and blue one and the red and black one that we made for them so huzzah huzzah what do you say we get into our main discussion yes let's get on into it we're going to be talking today about the Grishaverse and what you should know about it going in some of the things may be nice to know more so than need to know but yeah. i tried to pair the discussion down to things I probably would have liked to have known prior to reading the books because they mention certain places, certain things, certain historical events that sometimes if you're just trying to absorb the universe, it can get very easy to lose track of. So we wanted to kind of unpack that a little bit before we get started. Yeah. And things like even getting a definition of what a Grisha is, we don't even get that until a, two, a few chapters in, but they are mentioned in the first couple of chapters. So it's just good things to know that won't really provide any big spoilers or anything, but they'll just make you feel like a more informed and ready to take on the books listener as we go forward. So our first thing that we want to touch on is the author herself. So Lee Bardugo is our author. She has written every single one of the books that we are covering. And like we said, she had a hand in writing the show as well. And she is just a fabulous human being. And we just want to give you all a lowdown as to who she is, what she's done, and why we love her so much. And essentially, she is a number one New York Times bestselling author of fantasy novels and the creator of the Grishaverse. She also has other books that she's written, including Wonder Woman, Warbringer, and like we mentioned above, Ninth House. And she's working on the Ninth House sequel as well. She grew up in Southern California and graduated from Yale. Wow. 
Yes, that Yale. She's an Ivy League graduate, everybody. That's impressive. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an Ivy. I didn't get into Yale. So kudos to her, honestly. And these days she is living and writes in Los Angeles. And she is also a singer in her band called Captain Automatic, which is a good fun fact to know about her. I have not listened to her music, uh, but we could definitely listen to it and see what we think. And as we mentioned, and as I mentioned, as Jeff mentioned, we really love Lee. She's great. Uh, She just makes me smile so much. I just look at her Instagram and I've seen all the things she's posted recently. And she's just such a fabulous human being. So some of the reasons that we like her so much is she puts queer and people of color representation in her books. Granted, it is kind of a slow burn from where she started in Shadow and Bone to where she is in Six of Crows and where she's going with the show right now, where it's a lot more diverse in gender identity, in sexuality, in just race, everything like that. So we just love the fact that she's bringing in diversity into her books and the TV show and everything like that because it's needed it's wanted and it's something that a lot of YA and books up until this point have like really been lacking in Harry Potter. <laughs> um, so, so we're happy to get that in her books. Uh, so some of the other reasons we love Lee is she is an activist. She's always pushing some kind of social justice movement or something like that. And she's just on the cusp of, what is needing to be talked about right now, which is absolutely fabulous. One of the things that I love about her is how much passion she has for her content and for the creators and the community that loves her content. And I just, I've seen so many videos of it, of her going to the set and just crying when she meets the people who are portraying her characters because she just can't believe the fact that these characters are real and these people are here and her world is real and everything is just, people care enough to, to make her world come to life. And it's just so beautiful. I love it so much. She's just so passionate about all the people who support her and love what she's doing, you know? One of the interesting things about her is that she actually suffers from osteonecrosis, osteonecrosis, and she sometimes needs to use a cane. And I found this very interesting because this was the source of her inspiration for Katz Brecker. And she wanted to make it so having a cane and having a disability was not something to look down upon. And it was something to actually be proud of and wasn't wasn't something that was like taboo to talk about you know and she really makes Kaz a character that we all clearly based on the boyfriends list from above grow to love and really respect and you don't want to mess with Kaz Brecker let me just say that straight out the gate like if you're gonna mess with him (laughs) good luck on living essentially I would not want Kaz Brecker to be mad at me I'll tell you that yeah So the fact that he is that dangerous and he has a cane and he utilizes that cane to really up his game 
and the fact that she used that character to almost empower herself, I feel, and empower people who also suffer from this condition and also have to use adaptive devices to move around, I think is just absolutely fabulous. Because not only is she bringing in like POC and queer representations, she's bringing in the disabled community as well, which I think is just absolutely fabulous. Again, another reason why we love her so much. And I think the last reason I love her so much is she just, she's like a real person and she acts like one. And I know that a lot of times we get authors or celebrities that just think they're far above and beyond anyone who could ever live and they're just like a god, but she doesn't act like that. And she just is, she just seems from what I've seen and heard and read, such a nice person. And yeah, that's, that's why we love her. Any thoughts, Jeff? Just... To kind of echo what you said, uh, she's somebody who is clearly open to learning from what has happened to her. And she's been very, very open about even things like the mistakes that she's made going from being somebody who's never published a book to somebody who is now the shepherd of a beloved and successful franchise. She has not let fame change her at all. In fact, she has a unique and interesting perspective on what being well-known actually means. She broke down in an interview once what it really means when your book is on the New York Times bestseller list, and the tone of what she was saying was she doesn't want to discourage anybody from writing. As you said, she's supportive of other authors. I know that she... Holly Black, Victoria Aveyard, I don't think they necessarily get together and have coffee. Or maybe they do, I don't know. But I know that they're very supportive of each other's books, so they're not trying to compete with each other mm -hmm. because they understand there's room for everybody. But what she was saying about when you have a book that's on the New York Times bestseller list and you're a new author, that doesn't necessarily mean things change for you overnight. You don't suddenly have this vast fortune, you can pay off your house, all your credit cards, and you don't have to worry about money ever again. She admits herself that when she was writing Siege and Storm, when she was writing the second book of the Shadow and Bone trilogy, she was still living with her mom, and she was living mainly out of a suitcase. That was the second book that she was working on in this now very successful franchise. But she wasn't living she wasn't living a glamorous high life. That's not necessarily what's going to happen. So she just wanted people who might be thinking about becoming published authors to understand if this is something that you're going to get into, then you just need to be prepared to do a lot of hard work pretty much always. Yeah. And she's she is just such a hard worker and that again that's not the one of the reasons that we really we really just love her and we're so happy that she is the author of these books because we love her, we love the books, and we hope that that gives the, you listeners a little bit of background information as to who our lovely author is. So I guess with that, we will head into what the Grishaverse is and some things that we should know before we start chapter one of book one. So Jeff, what is the landscape of the Grishaverse? Well, the first thing that I want to say is that it helps if you have the map in front of you. There are several versions of the Grishaverse map. If you just do a Google search for 
the image of what the Grishaverse map looks like. I believe it's also in all of the published books so that you can keep track of where you are. We will send a copy out on our social media channels. You don't have to have the map in front of you. I think it just helps. Yeah, it's definitely very helpful because it's set up as... It's it's not reflective of any other map you would really be able to picture in your head. So... It's nice, too. And I will say, one of the things that I like about the books, the maps that are in the books, is that each book has a different map in the front of it, and it's reflective of what has happened or will happen in the book going forward. So that's just a fun little Easter egg. If you're going to read along with us, you will get three different maps, which is fabulous. So when you look at the map of the Grishaverse, you will see that there are really six countries. They don't give a name for what the world is. Presumably, it's just the world. It's safe to assume we are still on planet Earth. There is no mention of other planets. And it's difficult to say exactly what time period we are in, because much like the thing that comes to mind for me is some of the films of Hayao Miyazaki, where we have ships, we have submarines, we have aircraft, we have guns, We have a certain level of technology, but then other things that might have been around in the modern world around the same time, we don't have. Like, we don't have phones. They're still sending letters in this universe. But when you look at the map, on most of the land seems to be situated kind of on the east side of the map. Right in the middle is the country of Ravka, where most of the first three books take place. To the north of Ravka, you have Fjorda. To the south of Ravka, you have Shu Han. And then right in the middle of what they call the True Sea, you have Kerch. All the way over on the left, you have just two. Most of the land on the west side of the map is a country called Novia Zem. And to the north of that, you have the Wandering Isle. Now, bear in mind, this is just how the way the map is laid out. If this universe wraps around a globe like the planet we are living on, then presumably there would be a path from Ravka to Novia Zem going around the other way. But we don't get that, and we're probably not going to figure it out. Yeah, I don't see us getting any answers to that question anytime soon. Probably not. But the first country we'll talk about is Ravka. Ravka is a monarchy that is made up of different provinces that are united under Yaramir the Determined. You don't have to remember that name. It's not going to be on the test. It's just the (laughs) name of the person who united the provinces into what we now call Ravka. We've mentioned before that the inspiration for Ravka came from the country of Russia. Specifically, Libardugo said she had 1800 czarist Russia in mind when she came up with it. And Ravka and Russia, they just, they sound kind of similar. One of the themes that's very, very prevalent throughout the series is war. The countries are at war with each other over something or another, and Ravka even has kind of a civil war going on between the Grisha and the non-Grisha. That doesn't really come about until a little bit later in the series. But it's something that you can tell is brewing underneath the surface because relations between Grisha and non-Grisha are not the best. The royal family of Ravka is the Lansov family. 
like in a lot of uh, countries where you have a royal family, the Lansov family has sat the throne of Ravka for a very, very long time. And as far as a religion, this is something I consider interesting. They have the veneration of saints. Like, we even have, Juliana and I each have a copy now of the Lives of Saints, where they describe who the saints are that are worshipped and prayed to in Ravka, but they don't seem to have what you would call a god or like a main figurehead that they worship. And the yeah. church itself doesn't really have a name either. They just speak about people who are faithful and who pray to the saints. And I don't, there are, there may be religions out there like that, but there aren't any that I know of. When I think of saints, I usually think of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. But in Catholicism, you still have all of the usual um, figures that are worshipped and prayed to in Christianity. Yeah, I feel like it's very interesting that we don't get any kind of clear definition as to like what this religion is called, who the, I guess, sorry, what the hierarchy is within the religion of people that are worshipped. Because as people will go through the books, they use the word like saints to be like, oh my god, or like, what the f like all the time. And they really fall back on this idea of sainthood a lot, but it's not ever defined as to like, the religion is called this, and this is, these are the gods, and these are the saints, and blah, 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 blah. It's pretty much just, we learn about these saints as we go along, we learn more about this religion as we go along, but we don't get actual definitions outside of like who some of these saints are. And that the apparatus is creepy. Um, so that's really, <laughs> that's really all I took away from that, you know? And then the last thing about Ravka before we move on to some of the other countries is right smack dab in the middle, you have this thing called the Shadow Fold. When you look at the map, it actually says the Unsea. They word it that way on the map to ward off anybody who might be thinking of traveling through it that isn't as familiar with the story. But what we find out initially where we pick up is that years and years ago, the first Darkling, who was also known as the Black Heretic, created the Shadow Fold through an experiment that many believe to be an accident, what he was really doing was something called Merzost. Merzost is their word for something that is forbidden. And when we get into Grisha power a little bit more specifically, we'll talk about why that is. But through the use of Merzost, he accidentally unleashed this power that became the Shadow Fold. It took on a life of its own. It expanded to form a border between East and West Ravka. And unfortunately, several Ravkin citizens were trapped in the middle of the fold when it was created, and they were turned into these really horrible, scary, winged monsters called Volcra, which is part of why it's impossible to just travel through the Shadow Fold and pass from East to West Ravka freely, because any noise or any sound will incur the wrath of the Volcra, and they will, I believe, either eat you or turn you into one of them. Yeah. Neither one are good options. No, there are no good options. That's why they have to use a kind of land ship called a skiff that's powered by Grisha squallers. We'll talk about squallers. To sail very, very carefully across the shadow fold. But even then, you have to do it very, very delicately. And very few people actually survive the trip. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a delicate process. and Very delicate. 
not the best. But that no. is Ravka for you. And what is our next area of the map that we are headed to, Jeff? So to the north of Ravka, you have the country of Fierda. Similar to Ravka, it does have a monarchy, but the more you learn about Fierda, the more you find that the royal family is kind of just there for appearances because all of the real power of Fierda seems to come from the might of their military. And when I think of Fierda, I actually think of a combination of kind of a religious oligarchy where the church is in charge and a totalitarian government where the military is in charge because the military has all the real power, but they are very, very pious and religiously motivated. Yeah. Because the elite of this military are what they call the Druskela. And the Druskela are tasked with hunting down Grisha and bringing them back to Fierda to face trial, which is just a way of saying they're bringing them back to execute them for existing. Now, where Ravka doesn't seem to have a god, Fierda seems to have a polytheistic religion, but the chief god is somebody who is named Jell, D-J-E-L, also known as the Wellspring. And I actually have a quote from Six of Crows. I know we're starting with Shadow and Bone, but this is a quote from a character in Six of Crows to describe um, what the Fjordans believe. They says, The Fjordans believe all the world is connected through its waters, the seas, the ice, the rivers and streams, the rain and storms. All feed Jell and are fed by him. So in their religion, they also have an appreciation for the circle of life and the importance of nature. Certainly the importance of water. Yeah. Which is interesting because they, as we'll see in Six of Crows, have a strong affinity to ice. Mm-hmm. So a lot of a lot of their surroundings and a lot of what they where they live is very water-based, I would say. So very on brand for them. Very. Now, there are a lot of things that I both like and dislike about pretty much all of these countries, Mm -hmm. but the thing that drives me absolutely crazy about Fierda is, in a word, patriarchy. Super patriarchal society. It is a very conservative country where gender roles are very, very much enforced. Women are not allowed to serve in the military. Marriages are often arranged. Women are not allowed to have jobs that are considered man's work. So they do all of these things to keep women in their place. And I'm just going to say it, to keep white men in power. That's what what goes down in Fierda. And they do it through this veil of oh, we revere women more than everyone else. And it is because we respect them so much that we must protect them. No woman would ever want to fight when I could protect her. Oh, no. No one would ever. Exactly. It's like, oh, go shut up and stick her head in a hole somewhere. Now, to the south of Ravka. I almost said Fyrda. Now, to the south of Ravka, you have Shu Han which is another fascinating country that we don't get a ton of information about until much, much later on. We know that there is a royal family in charge. They are currently under the Taban dynasty. And unlike Fjorda, women can serve in the military. In fact, in the Shu Han, the queen's personal guard, who are called the Tavgarad, is made up of women. 
So they have a queen who is in charge of the Taban dynasty. The queen's guard is made up of women. So they seem to be in contrast to Fierda. Women are the ones who are in charge here, which I think is really great. Yeah, I I agree. And what's interesting is you don't hear much mention of men from the Shu Han who are in positions of authority. The queen has a a council of ministers who serve as her advisors, but they don't say anything about a king. They don't say anything about the queen having a husband. They don't say anything about the queen's having sons either. They may be there, but not that we're aware of. So the inspiration for the Shu Han came from China and Mongolia, and specifically the author says that the name is actually taken from one of the three major states that fought for supremacy of China during the Three Kingdoms period. So I think that the reference to, again, the reference to what country the author had in mind is very, very clear, and I think it's respectfully done. Yeah, I agree. I feel like with all the countries that she uses and creates, I feel as though she does it in a respectful way. So we can definitely see where she's pulled inspiration from, but it doesn't feel offensive in any capacity. No. Something that is very curious about Shuhan is that they have a particular emphasis on science and technology. And we see a lot of examples throughout the series of how advancements made by Shu scientists have both benefited the world and caused some serious problems. But one thing that seems to be a very big positive about Shuhan is that it's summer all the time. Yeah. If you are the kind of person who does not like the cold, I personally love the cold, but Juliana is pointing at herself right now. <laughs> I hate now. the cold. <laughs> so she, she, you would probably do very well in the Shuhan then, because it is summer all the time there. I feel like I could definitely live in a feminist science forward warm community. I feel like that is my calling here. Okay, Juliana is going to be moving to the Shuhan. Yeah, peace out, friends. Here so I go. So just send us a postcard. Yeah, I'll, I'm sure they have some lovely postcards. I'm sure these ladies have wonderful hand, a wonderful handed artwork, so it won't disappoint. I'll tell you that much. Since so many people, especially people who are listening to this, probably started with Six of Crows, they will probably be most familiar with the country we're going to talk about next. Right in the middle of the map is this little parcel of land just kind of hanging out in the middle of the true sea there. It's called Kerch. It is heavily influenced by the Dutch Republic of the 1700s, but is also got a little bit of New York, New Amsterdam, Las Vegas, and Victorian London mixed in there. And that is a direct quote from an interview that Lee Bardugo gave, I believe, to Barnes & Noble. Ah, okay. I definitely the can release see of one of her books. I definitely see some of the Las Vegas and the New York influence in there as I've read through the books. I don't really know about Victorian London that much, but I'm sure it's there. Well, you can tell in the fashion, oh, in the true. way that people conduct themselves, in the structure of how everything works in Kerch. And speaking of that, I summed up the country of Fierdo with the word patriarchy, so I will offer up a word to summarize Kerch, and that is capitalism. Yeah. The capital city of Ketterdem is run by a merchant council. They are the government. They literally worship the almighty dollar. They have a navy, 
but their part in the war game really seems to come from funding other countries' armies as part of a business transaction. They're mainly focused in importing and exporting goods. And, like, they literally worship money. They pray to a god called Gazin, who is the god of industry and commerce, in a place called the Church of Barter. Talk about the love of money. It's the thing that they care about. It's definitely a huge underlying theme with any interactions that we get in Ketterdam or in Kirch in the books. Yeah, imagine if the investors from the show Shark Tank were in charge of a city government and they had all the power. That's what we're working with here. Now, there is a land bridge that connects the Shuhan to Kirch, but it is kept submerged by the mysterious Council of Tides. And we will talk about the Council of Tides when they come up in the series. They're a fascinating part of the Six of Crows duology. But their job is to basically make sure that everything stays on the up and up since Kirch is surrounded by water. They control the tides to make sure that everything gets out and comes in safely. But they have a certain amount of power because they can also, if something's coming in and they don't want it to, or a ship is trying to get out and they don't want it to leave, they can dry up the waters and they can dry dock you. I just read about that. It is the small science equivalent of putting a boot on a car. That's something else they don't have. They have submarines. They have aircraft. They don't have cars. Yeah, no, no, They're they don't really have cars. They're really all over the place. Yeah, I, I truly have no idea what time frame this is in. Truly none. No, no clue. And there are gangs all over Ketterdom. Presumably yes. other parts of Kirch. They really just focus on the city of Ketterdom. But there are gangs everywhere. We don't get mention of gang activity in other countries that much. There's probably criminals and there's probably law enforcement. But in the Six of Crows duology, we see a lot of gang activity. We see that they have a police force they call the Stodwatch. So there again, you have pr the police who keep the community safe. That's not something you really hear that much about in other countries here. Yeah, and we'll also learn that the police happen to also be motivated by money as well. So... Well, it's not like inspiration for that could have come from real life. Oh, no, never. No one would have ever pulled that from a real life situation. That's a hot take. <laughs> So then to briefly just kind of round out the map, there are two countries over on the west side of the map, Novia Zem and the Wandering Isle. We don't get a lot of information about these two countries because this may be a little bit of a spoiler, but I don't really consider it one. We don't go to these countries, not directly. We, we see glimpses of some of these countries through flashbacks, but we don't actually journey with the characters in real time to these places just yet. I'm hoping that we do because Novia Zem seems like a really fascinating place to me. The yeah. idea for Novia Zem uh, was based on the idea that went into the American colonies in Australia with some other influences. And the name actually comes from a Russian archipelago called, I'm going to try to get this right, Novaya Zemlia. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me too which translates to new land. It's 
main purpose in the story is that it's a farming community because it's a place where they grow something called jerda. Jerda is a plant with orange leaves that is then distilled into something that you chew. It stains your teeth orange when you use it, but it's a natural stimulant, which since you have so many countries that have very active militaries or law enforcement or all of these people who are going to have to go on missions or go off to war or stand on guard duty, they're going to have to stay awake for very long periods of time. So something like Jerda is going to be very, very important. Yeah, it's kind of like caffeinated gum almost that stains your teeth orange. Very good. Yeah, that's like caffeinated gum. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot younger compared to other countries, which might explain why we don't have a lot of action here, but it was set up to be a place of peace and prosperity where people could get away from a lot of the unpleasantness, kind of like a safe haven from mm -hmm. all the nasty things going on in your own country. What I do find most intriguing about Novia Zem is that it's the only other place we find out about besides Ravka where the Grisha are actually taught to use their powers. They don't have a little palace in the capital where they train you and then automatically conscript you to the military like Ravka. They have schools. Yeah, which I think is awesome. And definitely it would be so interesting. And I know that you said you wanted a book here, Jeff. I do. It would be so interesting to see this book because I feel like the contrast between the books that we're getting right now, which are very much so filled with conflict and things like that, this would be a much lower stakes book, something to take to the beach and read and come away with a smile from. And mm -hmm. I think it'd be nice as, as you and I are both Hufflepuffs, Jeff. I feel like this would be a very Hufflepuff place to be living. Very much. And then the last country on the map is the Wandering Isle. We find out the least about this country so far. We don't go there. Not many of the characters are from there. Um, the characters that come from the Wandering Isle are described as having a very fair complexion and red hair a lot of the time. And when I've listened to the audiobooks, as I've mentioned, the audiobook narrators usually give the characters from this country an accent that sounds Irish to me. If it sounds like anything other than an Irish accent, I hope that some of the listeners will let us know. Ireland is referred to as the Emerald Isle, so I kind of thought there was a relation there as well. The Emerald Isle, the Wandering Isle. The language is Kalish, which is also the word they use to describe the nationality of people from the Wandering Isle, which sounds a lot like Gaelic, which is actually the language of Scotland. I was just Googling it very quickly. And it looks like the Wandering Isle is also part of World of Warcraft. It's a part, mm -hmm. it's one of the lands that you can go to there as well. So it seems very peaceful from that as well. Fascinating. But that is an explanation, as brief as we could make it, of what you're looking at when you look at a map of the Grishaverse. These are the countries that are going to have various parts to play in the series as we work through it. So now that we know a little bit more about where we are, why don't we talk about what exactly is a Grisha? Giuliani, would you like to start us on that? Sure. So what in all the heck is a Grisha anyway? So this is something that I feel as though going into the books now before we start is kind of interesting and good to know just because they don't actually define for you what a Grisha is straight out the gate. So this is just good, good background knowledge to have as we uh, head forward into the fold. 
So a Grisha is a person who has the ability to use the small science. And what is the small science, you ask? Well, first off, it is not magic. Thank you very much. It is not magic. And it is the art of manipulating matter at its most basic form. So manipulating the cells and moving them around and combining them with things at a molecular level. And good lord, do not call it magic. And there is an actual word that you would use that Jeff already mentioned to describe what the Grisha call actual magic. And it is morost. Am I pronouncing that right, Jeff? The word is merzost. Merzost. Right. And merzost actually, I believe, translates to forbidden. The difference between the small science and merzost is that merzost is closer to magic where you can essentially conjure something out of nowhere. Whereas the small science is a manipulation of what is already there to work with. So, for instance, you have in the... We'll get into the classes, but in the Ethereal'ci, the Order of Summoners, you have Squallers who manipulate the wind. They're working with the air pressure that is already there. So the air is already around them. Same with Inferni, who control fire, and Tidemakers, who control water. They're manipulating what exists, but they're not conjuring it out of nowhere. So that's what makes it similar to bending from the Avatar universe. You can control what you already have, but you can't make it out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it's more of a an ability to control certain aspects of nature as uh, like you have a gift with one of these aspects of nature and thus you're able to help manip- learn to manipulate it because it is a skill that is innate in your being like you have to be born with it but you also really have to practice and learn how to utilize that skill as you go and like I said, the ability to be a Grisha and I guess just being a Grisha in general is something that is you're born with. And how they usually discover that you are a Grisha is Grisha examiners come to test out children when their abilities become detectable. And if you do present with some of these abilities, you are then scooped up and brought to the little palace in the Robkin capital and you are there to train and to become a member of the second army. This applies to Ravkin Grisha. They aren't going out and seeking Grisha from any other countries. And we get into, at the end of this episode, we'll look a little bit at how uh, they look at Grisha in other countries. But this is specifically ravkin grisha they don't say exactly what detectable means or if there's some kind of way for you to report to the capital if you think you may have a child who is a grisha it is typical for grisha powers grisha powers do have to be passed down from person to person they can't just manifest out of nowhere so presumably these grisha when they've served in the military what do you do after that? Do you just is it a lifetime of military service or do you get to retire with an army pension? Maybe you set up a little business for yourself and then you get married, you have little Grisha babies and then you know as soon as they start to show signs of power that they're going to go into the military. I mean, what do you do with that? Uh, that is a fan fiction just waiting to happen, Jeff. I will tell you that much. It's a fan fiction that one of us will have to write. Probably you. Uh <laughs> 
So I, I'm not really sure, but definitely it is interesting. I will say, though, too, that I feel as though, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, Ravka is really one of the only places where it's okay to kind of be a Grisha, essentially. Mm. Like, out in the open, per se. Well, see, that's the thing. It, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more when we get to that section. Okay. Because, see, you, we say okay. That's... Yeah, I'm using the word okay. The next point, Grisha have a word for non-Grisha. They use the word otskazatsia, which literally means orphaned or abandoned. People who are not Grisha just refer to themselves as people. They don't have a special word for themselves because they don't feel like they need one. They're just people. It's the uh, it's always the others who need a special name. So Grisha have the power to use the small science and people are people, but Grisha call them Otskazatsia. And there's this kind of tension you see between Otskazatsia and Grisha. Some people revere them and respect what they can do. Some people are intimidated by them and they're just afraid to incur the wrath of somebody who can control something they can't. Some people consider them unnatural. Or maybe they're just jealous. Maybe they just wish that they could use this power themselves. Yeah, I think a lot of it does stem from jealousy and them having a weapon, per se. Because, like we said, most of these Grisha in the universe that we are interacting with end up being part of an army. Or at least end up fighting in some capacity. And the fact that the other governments don't have this very unique and powerful force behind them i definitely could see them being mad about that and then just hating the grisha because they are they don't have grisha as well one last thing about um grisha in general before we move on to the different classes is that there are things called amplifiers in this universe also that do have the ability to increase a grisha's power they are very rare and in my understanding, they are taken from the bones, teeth, or scales of powerful animals who were killed by that Grisha who are going to receive that material as an amplifier. It has to be sealed by a fabricator, and only Grisha who are favored by the Darkling are allowed to have an amplifier, and you're only allowed to have one. So you only get one. You only get it if the Darkling says you can have it, and you have to kill the animal that the amplifier comes from yourself. I know that there may be a lot of people out there who read the series or who are finding out about this just now exactly what amplifiers are, who are against the idea of amplifiers in general. I mean, you already have power. How much more do you need? And what's more... Why do you have to kill an animal to make yourself more powerful? Why can't the animals live? I think we might have made Mel very happy by, by saying that just now, because our, our dear Mel is a very big lover of animals, and I think she would probably agree. Yeah, and I feel like most people on the whole, at least most people that I know, even if you're not vegan and you're not a huge animal rights activist, would have a hard time just killing an animal straight out the gate. It's just not something that you would that most people I would say innately feel comfortable with. I'm one of those people. I d I don't think I can. I don't. I oh, couldn't, I couldn't do, it. do it. I couldn't do it. I'll just take my pitiful regular Grisha powers. Thank you very much. If it if need be, I don't need. I don't. I don't need to kill things. 
So why don't we move into the Grisha classes and talk about exactly what kind of power they have and what they can do with it? Yes. So one of the things that is a theme of this book and that we did mention on our our trailer is that like calls to like. So that is pretty much meaning that something within the individual within the person gives them an affinity for a certain type of matter. So something inside of them is calling for things that are outside of them that are like them. And given that connection with the thing that is like them, they are able to manipulate that. So say that you're the thing that you are like is like the water. So you can manipulate the water because something inside of you is like the water. And Mel is also going to love this because I've said like, about 20 times in the last second, in the last minute. I only counted 19, but okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. Just 19. My bad. Now, I know that one of your favorite things about the Grisha is that they get a very special type of coat. So yes. tell us about those. Yes. Yeah, so I love pretty shiny things. Let's just put that right out, straight out the gate. And... They have very nice coats that these Grisha wear, and they are called keftas. So these are a type of coat. It seems that most of the keftas are large kind of winter coats that are heavier coats. We do get a mention of some lighter keftas in the book that are worn to like fancy occasions and when it's a little bit warmer outside. But again, it's kind of reflective of the climate that these books take place in where it's cold most of the time. So the the heavy jacket is appropriate. But they are, I want to say, a calf length or at least a knee length jacket that is... Oh, you did write this in here. Wool for winter and silk for summer. And the battle kefta. Yeah. And the battle kefta is made from bulletproof core cloth designed by the material Kai. And they have the fur cuffs and the fur collar. And if you want to see a good variety of these, I would say go look at some screenshots from the show. Because there are a lot of different ways that you can make these keftas. And like we'll talk about in a few minutes, the color of the kefta signifies what the order of the Grisha is and we'll get into the orders in just a minute but there are some very beautiful keftas whoever made these keftas for the show is fabulous the stitch work the embroidery everything is just absolutely beautiful so I am definitely a big fan of the keftas and it's nice to have them from a show standpoint as well because it gives you an easy differentiation it's to who is doing what. So you know like, oh yes, this person is a heart render. This person is a squalor. Just by visually seeing them and what color they are wearing. So it's very, very useful and very practical in that aspect. And just very pretty and nice. I like it. So now we'll get into the different Grisha orders. The first order, the one that is, I would say, the most popular or the one that most young people probably hope that they will end up getting to be, if they turn out to have Grisha power, is the Corporalkai. The Corporalkai are the order of the living and the dead. They wear red keftas, and they have power over human beings, essentially. Their powers do not, however, have any effect on animals. If you have black cuffs and a collar, you are a heart render. 
heartrenders have control over internal organs, and for that reason, they are really the frontline soldiers of the Second Army because they can control breathing, heart rate. They can actually slow the healing process so that your wounds will stick around much longer. They can even influence emotions. So they can knock you out. They can take the air right out of your lungs. They can just snap their fingers, and you're out. Depending on how much power they have and how much concentration they have. It's more a combination of weird arm movements and things like that, but... Right, that is essential for... Actually, any Grisha, as we go through these orders, are unable to use their power without the use of their hands. That is essential. For uh, heart renders, they have to have the target in their line of sight and they have to be within a certain range to really be able to accomplish what they want. So if you're standing right in front of me and I'm a heart render, then I basically got you right where I want you. But if you're a lot farther away, and even if there's a tree in front of you, like I can tell you're behind it, but I don't have a clear shot of where you're standing, then my power isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit finicky, but it definitely... The, this power and this order of Risha, definitely, you can see why they would be the frontline soldiers. Because if you have a very skilled heart runner, then you can essentially knock out the front line of any army that you're going up against in like two seconds. Just cut off the blood flow to their brains. Done. Adios, friends. So the next uh, type in the order of Corporalkai is the healers. They have gray cuffs and collars, and that's exactly what it sounds like. They have the ability to heal. And it's not the most powerful, or it's not the most popular, I should say, but it's certainly one of the most useful because we don't really get mention of very many doctors in the world of Grisha. So presumably, I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure exactly what a Grisha does after they are serving in the military like when they're when they're too old to really be of much use in battle from a practical standpoint so maybe if you're a healer then maybe you can take your army pension and you can set up a little medical practice for yourself become a, a family uh, general practitioner for for grisha because they don't get sick, but they do get wounded obviously because they they get hurt a lot they don't get sick the way uh, non-Grisha would. And if they don't use their power, this is something that's interesting to note also about Grisha, is that they keep themselves youthful-looking and vibrant and healthy by using their power. But if you don't use your power and you're a Grisha, then it'll start to turn inward and it'll start to kind of make you waste away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like these healers are kind of a substitution for doctors in the books because like you said we don't get mentions about any doctors but these healers seem to be able to kind of be the fix-all for any time anything happens that the rishas are hurt or anything like that and we should also note jeff that this is your order it is which is good to know and i know that you said it's not the most popular but i feel like most of the people i know actually said that they were healers or wanted to be a healer 
I feel like that's a natural thing for people to gravitate towards because it's certainly something that I think each of us would like to be able to do. Like, I don't need yeah. to be able to squeeze a person's heart until it bursts just by looking at them, or I don't need to be able to, I don't, I don't need to be able to just walk up to somebody and say, you're out. Yeah, I would much rather have the ability to heal people easily who, who need it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a more noble order of Grisha. And then to finish out the order of Corporalkai, we also have tailors. Tailors still have the red kefta, but they have a dark blue cuffs and collar. And maybe it's just me, but having dark blue cuffs and a collar and a red kefta just seems to me like an odd color combination. Yeah, it's definitely a weird color combination. But they have the ability to alter a person's appearance. So where fabricators deal with composite solid materials, they're sort of like the fabricators of people. And what's interesting about tailors is that all corporalci are taught basic tailoring skills. Presumably since they're conscripted into the military so that they can alter their appearance if ever they need to go on a particularly dangerous mission where they don't want to be recognized, like if they're doing undercover work, then some basic tailoring skills would probably come in handy. So now that we have covered the corporalci, why don't we move on to the ethereal-kai? Juliana, would you like to take us through that? Yeah, so the ethereal guy, this is the Order of Summers. They wear the blue kefta. I love the blue kefta. I think it's beautiful. I mean, I love the red kefta too, but like blue is more of a favorite color for myself. And these people have power over the natural elements. So we have three different orders within the ethereal guy. So we have the squallers, which have a silver cuff and collar, and they have the power of the wind. So they can keep the wind in your sails, control your traveling, and also they can utilize the wind as a weapon in combat to just blow you right off the edge of your boat. Goodbye, friend. And do other things. We've all been hit by a very strong wind once, and it's not fun. So Never underestimate the power of a particularly strong gust of wind. Yes, I agree. And some of the other things that they can do is summoning lightning storms or just storms in general by pushing the clouds over a specific area. So that can also be extremely dangerous. So having a squalor as part of the first, I'm sorry, the second army is definitely very useful, I would say. And kind of cool because you can't see the wind, but it's definitely extremely powerful. True. It is worth noting also, I think, that the ability to summon lightning or storms is something of which squalors may be capable, but in the second army it is not taught or permitted because it's considered too unstable and too dangerous. So you may be able to do it, but they don't want you to learn how and they're not going to teach you because the ability to control lightning is something that they just can't take the risk that in learning how to do it, you're not going to accidentally kill either yourself or other people. Okay, so our next order in the Ethereal Kai is the Inferni. Am I pronouncing that correct? Inferni? Inferni. I think it's Inferni, but you were close Inferni. enough the first time. Inferni. And they have the red cuffs and collar, and they have the power of fire, which is a... Obviously a source of warmth and fuel, and obviously also very dangerous. And 
being able to control fire very carefully is a huge skill that can be very well utilized in battle and definitely makes them, again, an asset to the second army. And the only other kind of caveat with the Inferni is that they require a flint or a spark in order to activate their powers because, again, they can't be just making things out of nothing. They have to manipulate what's already there. So they have to create the fire first. And then once the fire is present, they can then utilize it and like calls to like, you know. So if you're an anime person like me, think uh, Colonel Roy Mustang from the Full Metal Alchemist series. He has special gloves with transmutation circles on them. And then he uses his fingers to snap, and that's the spark, and that's how he creates the fire. So it's a little bit similar to that. I can imagine the Inferni having special gloves that have flints in them, or and so they could just like snap and be like, Poof, If they, they don't, they that. should. Yeah, someone's put a trademark on that, Jeff. Don't let those Grisha get away with their, your money. Uh <laughs> So our last order of the Ethereal Guy is the Tide Makers. So they have the pale blue cuffs and collar, and they have the power of water. So they can control tides, they can boil and freeze water, and they can also drown a person on dry land. Uh, I guess if there's water underneath the underneath the land, you could pull for it and just drown someone. Well. What I mean by they can drown a person on dry land is they can actually drown a person from the inside out. We see at least one example I know of, of a tide maker attempting to do exactly that. And if you think about it, the human body is made up of more water than anything else. So even though you have corporalci who specifically have power over human organs, and that's what they do, the makeup of the human body is mostly water so if you have a grisha who can manipulate water then you have a grisha who can manipulate people yeah no that's at that's least very in true. that sense they can that is a extremely good point i fully agree with that jeff so yeah they could they could just drown you from the inside out what's curious is that you have, with the Ethereal Guy, the Order of Summoners, you have fire, you have water, you have air. There are no Grisha who specifically have power over the Earth, but that might be because Earth is a composite material, and that leads us into our next order. So why don't you start us off with the Material Guy? Yeah, so our Material Guy, we have the Order of Fabricators. So they are the Purple Keftas. Juliana's favorite color. And they have the power over composite materials, aka metal, glass, textiles, and chemicals. So, like Jeff said, they can control things like the Earth. So, in regards to the orders within the Material Guy, we have the Durists, which focus on working with anything solid on a molecular level and can also change the texture and color of objects and move solid objects with touch. So, they're kind of the makers of. The material guy, they're the ones who are making new kinds of steel and new kinds of glass and all these different cool things that can be used and made like like completely shatterproof glass or something like that, you know, that just holds a certain property because they're able to manipulate the elements that are inside of these non-living things. 
And the stuff that they are making is better than the stuff that non-Grisha are making, because instead of just having to use other things to manipulate the thing, they can affect this stuff on a molecular level. They can understand what it is made up of, and then they can change those things to actually make them even more stronger. So they can make weapons that will last a lot longer and will hold up a lot better in combat. They're the ones who make the material that goes into making Kefta, which is heavy enough that it's durable, but it's light enough that you can move around. Because if you think about it, even when you're wearing the heavy wool Kefta, you still have to be able to move your arms to be able to use your power in your hands. So it has to have practical use in combat. Yeah, they're kind of the bo- the biomedical engine. The, the sorry, biomolecular engineers of this universe. They are the ones creating things to kind of better the lives of themselves and other Grishas and making, yeah, making the things, like you said, Jeff, they're the people who make, who make the things. Okay, so just to round off the material, Kai, why don't we talk a little bit about alchemy? Sure. So the alchemy are the ones that focus on working with blasting powders and poison, and they can take the poisons out of a person and themselves and then release them, which is very interesting. And these are the more weaponized of the Materialkai, which is interesting. One thing about the Materialkai that's unique to their order is, first of all, they get looked down on by the other Grisha orders because they aren't seen as powerful and they aren't really out on the front lines. A lot of their work happens more in laboratories, behind closed doors. Nobody really knows exactly what they get up to. But um, they also generally get just referred to as fabricators because whether you're a Durist or an Alchemy, you kind of end up working together so closely that they're rarely distinguished according to which kind of material guy they are. So in general, if you're a fabricator, you're a fabricator. And that's how most people are going to look at you. Yeah. And this is my order. I am a, a durist. I identify as a durist because I don't want to deal with poisons. Thank you very much. And I like to make things. So You do uh, like to make things. And were you much good at science when you were in school? I don't think we've ever talked about that. Oh, yeah. Like being a dietitian, I had to take organic chemistry and biochemistry, molecular biology, all the sciences. I I I my whole degree is in science. <laughs> well there you so, go yes. then. You, you you identify very well with this order because it, it has a lot to do with, with where your strengths are and, and what you're good at. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a huge reason as to why I identify with this one. And there are some really great characters among the fabricators, as we'll see when we start to get into the series. Yeah, there definitely are. And I'm excited for people to get to know them. So that'll be fun. So just to round off our discussion of Grisha, why don't we take a little bit of a closer look at exactly how the world views them? Mm-hmm. We get a ton of information about Grisha in Ravka. They make up the second army, which is led by the Darkling. As we've discussed, they're feared or mistrusted by many common people. And the most tension actually seems to exist between the first army and the second army. The first army is made up of regular soldiers, and the second army is made up of Grisha. The first army, in general, does not like the second army. And 
Other people may have their opinions about why this is. I think they're jealous. I think they're jealous too. I think they know that these unique abilities, if they are carefully honed and grown and used for all the things that they can be used for, makes them a much more formidable foe than somebody who is, in this universe at least, limited to weapons specialist and hand-to-hand combat those things are by no means limitations of an average human being but when you compare that to somebody who can control fire as long as they have a flint yeah i I think it's pretty clear which one of them has the upper hand there yeah just a little bit obvious in fierda grisha as we said are considered witches and abominations and they are hunted by the druskela there are examples of Grisha in these other countries as we do see. What we don't see is how the country actively tries to employ or utilize Grisha power a lot of the time. Sometimes we do. But most of the time, if we're talking about Grisha, we're talking about people who came from Ravka. If there are Grisha in Fjorda, I think they try to use their power because even if no one ever taught them otherwise, they know what's going to happen to them if they don't because they can feel it. But they don't ever come out and proud and say, look what I could do. (sighs) Because if they do that, that's a bad idea. Off with your head. Yeah, bad idea. Not a good idea. In Novia Zem, even though we don't get a lot of information or insight yet as to exactly what Novia Zem is like from a firsthand perspective, they actually have a word for it. They are referred to as Zoa, which means blessed. So in Novia Zem, they have reverence for the Grisha. And as we said, they have schools where they can learn to use their power. It's a place of peace. So they don't have an army of Grisha, but they at least respect that people are born with a gift and that they deserve to learn how to use it responsibly, which I think is very practical. As they have this ability, they're going to figure out eventually they have to use it anyway. So If you at least start from a place of, I want you to be safe, I want you to be happy, you deserve nice things too. So let us help you to learn these powers safely. I mean, that's the responsible way to treat things. Right, because then you're creating a culture and an expectation of, we're happy here, let's respect one another, instead of, let's use this weapon to crush our enemies. Yeah. In Kirsch, they have Grisha working as indentured servants, but when you find out about indentured servitude in Kirsch, what you find is that it's a lot of rich people tricking less educated people into contracts that they can't get out of. You sign a contract agreeing to be paid a certain amount, or you work until you have paid off a debt, but then they charge you for everything, and when you finally get a look at what your ledger says, you end up owing them more than when you first arrived. Mm -hmm. So an indentured servant in Kirch is not something that you ever want to be. I don't think indentured servitude in general, I don't think it's a good idea. It's just another kind of slavery. Mm -hmm. It's slavery with a paycheck. But a lot of it really comes down to a slave trade. They bring in Grisha and they have them enter into these indentured servitudes. Yep. And then they either never get out of it or they don't survive. It's sad. It's a, it's terrible. In the Shu Han, I don't think they use Grisha in their army, but they do seem to take advantage of Grisha power 
to create the kind of things that you wouldn't be able to do with ordinary science. Like, we in the real world have not come up with a way of creating a cyborg. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. But in the Shu Han, they take fabricator and corporalkai power and combine them to make people who have very unique and dangerous abilities. So they're sort of a combination of first and second army soldiers. And when we get further into the series, we'll see examples of exactly how they employ that kind of technology. But that, to me, sounds like a lot of mad science. And then, of course, the Wandering Isle. No idea. Yeah, we don't, don't know anything about them. Don't ask. No clue. There no are Grisha, I believe, who come from that part of the world, but they end up somewhere else. We have no idea what Grisha get up to who are from the Wandering Isle who stay there. We don't know. But that wraps up everything that we had to say about things that you should know before you head into the Grishaverse. So I have a fan fiction, and I would like you to make, as we do, Jeff, if you would like to make one prediction on this fan fiction, uh, I would say that the name of the fan fiction is Mallory. Just Mallory. That's the name of the fan fiction. Uh-huh. I will say it does include an OC, which is an original character, and that the tags on this are comedy and romance. Okay. What would you like to guess happens in this fan fiction, Jeff? It is only 368 words. It's not a very lengthy fan fiction, so there's not a huge character arc happening here, but uh, what would you what would you say is going to happen? I'm going to say that since it's only 300 and something words, this is going to be one of those fan fictions where somebody is writing a letter to somebody else. Ooh, a letter fan fiction. That's a good guess, Jeff. Yes, somebody is writing a letter to somebody. I don't know what. Okay. So someone is, there will be a letter writing situation involved in some capacity here. So let's hear it. Okay. <clears throat> Mallory. Ooh, Darkling, I'm so happy to see you, Mallory called. And I, you, Mallory, the Darkling. I'm wrong. The Darkling I'm bird. instantly wrong. <laughs> I've longed so badly for your presence. OMG, you make me blush, Darkie. Mallory <laughs> placed her... <laughs> Mallory Mallory placed her hand on what? the Darkling's shoulder with one Darkie. hand. Darkie! <laughs> I don't think you should say that. <laughs> I don't think you should say that. Well, Mallory just did, so... Oh my goodness. <laughs> Mallory, Mallory placed her hand on the Darkling's shoulder with one hand and twirled her hair in the other. She batted her eyelashes at him. Her love for him was almost dot 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 toxic. The Darkling looked at Mallory darkly. Kiss me, darling. Okay, my darling. <laughs> Mallory threw her arms around the Darkling's neck and smashed her lip up against his. This is not how a conversation <laughs> with the Darkling would go at all. <laughs> he traced her lip with his tongue, begging for entrance entrance she obliged their tongues battled for dominance 
battle for dominance. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> okay, tugs are battling for dominance. Oh my god. Now I wish this was longer than 300 words. <laughs> well, I this and this is the only one that this author has written, so I was very sad that there was not a sequel to this. Uh, okay, so their tongues are battling for dominance. Ew, that's toxic! A random passerby shouted at them, sadly breaking apart the battle of tongues. <laughs> <laughs> I need coffee! Now! The Darkling told Mallory. My- Mallory smiled up at the Darkling and intertwined her fingers through his before she led him to the nearest coffee shop, which just happened to be across the street. It was called Course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they have a battle of the tongues. Somebody walks by and makes a disparaging remark about their epic makeout session, which has a name, The Battle of the Tongues, and now they're going out for coffee. Because the Darkling needed coffee. He said he needed it now. Uh-huh. He's tired. I mean, having a battle of the tongues really drains you. Uh-huh. <laughs> they went inside. They walked up to the barista. E.L. James, but not that E.L. James. <laughs> Another one. E.L. James isn't even a Robkin name. <laughs> no, it's the writer of of, of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I know who it is, <laughs> but it's not that one. They just said so. It's, it's not that E.L. James, okay? Oh my god. <laughs> what do you want now? E.L. James groaned. I want coffee. Black. Like my soul, the Darkling said darkly (laughs) as he wrapped his fur cape around Mallory, whose boots also had fur. Mallory looked up at the Darkling and batted her eyelashes. What about me? Mallory mewed. She'll have the same, black, like her soul, the Darkling told E.L., who just looked at them like they were crazy. Probably because they were. Uh, but that didn't mean E.L. was going to comment about their relationship in public, because honestly, she didn't get paid enough to have to deal with all that drama. Although, perhaps she should harass everyone in the coffee shop, because now they were all, all somehow involved in the toxic relationship. But again, she didn't get paid enough for that, so she kept her mouth shut and kept on living. <laughs> the Darkling and Mallory drank their coffee. They went to he- her place to get their freak on. The end. <laughs> okay so they have to use things like the battle of the tongues to describe their making out then they go for coffee they get it from el james but not that one and then to just bring it home the author says they went home and they got it on yep they got the freak on at the end the end they got their freak on goodbye the end goodbye we don't need any more information so, what did, what did you think of that, Jeff? Did you like Mallory? Is that a good story? I don't know how to feel <laughs> about anything anymore. <laughs> oh my god. Now you can see why I was so excited when I just happened to find this fan fiction. Yeah, uh, I get I, it. it. It spoke to me in a way that none of the other ones I had read had. I can see why. Well, thank you for, thank you listeners for indulging me in that. And thank you, Jeff, for indulging me in that, uh. I thought that was 
uh, a very enlightening story very. that we just listened to. Very enlightening. And if you would like to get in contact with us, you can listen to us on all places where pods are cast. And if you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we would love for you to give us a five-star review if you feel it's appropriate. And if you leave us a review in writing, we will read it here on the show. Hooray! You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at IntoTheFoldPod. You can also send us an email. We'd like to hear any feedback that you have. And you can send it to IntoTheFoldPod at gmail.com. And everything you need, you can find at our link tree, which is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Into the Fold. So we will see you next time for episode three, where we will be discussing the first two chapters of Shadow and Bone. I'm Jeff. I'm Juliana. See See you in the fold. Okay, that might be better than the actual like little news thingy that you had. I don't remember where I got that from. I'll look it up and I'll tell you after we're done here. Oh my god. Oh my god, you guys. Like, we're, here. we're gonna go to a pretty little layer with me angry. Oh my god. Oh my god. So I love everyone so much. <laughs> this is turning into another Mattitude. 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 It did raining and Mattitude. No. It's sunny. Yeah. It's sunny outside. Okay. I hear a kitty cat. That would be Yuki. She's upset that she's not sitting in my lap right now, but I can't guarantee that she'll just sit here and be quiet the whole time. Well, that's fine. She she made her guest appearance, and we're happy for her. You want to know how I pronounce that word in my head, Jeff? I would love to know. Drunskull. Drunskull. Okay. Drunskull. Okay. The Drunskull. There's no uh-huh. N. There's no nice. N in that. Like is like calling to like, and like, oh like we're liking that like calls to like, because like when like likes like, and you like like like, then you can like yeah. call like to like, and like, oh I God. like it. It's like oh, I like love it. Like so cool, Jeff. So cool.